We've been looking at uh, sati and satipatthana, mindfulness and the applications of mindfulness in some detail over previous days. And having, having exhausted that, we're going to move on and do something different. And we're going to go back to the beginning. Uh, we'll do a, a series of talks on the invention of Buddhism how it all came about and we'll do this by looking in particular at the first three teachings of the Buddha Dhamma Chaka Pavantana Sutta setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma Anatta Lakana the not self characteristic and finally Aditta burning Um, and we'll weave the Buddha's story into that so this will be partly esoteric Buddhist philosophy and partly bedtime story Uh, and the bedtime story you can regard as historical fiction because I'm creating a character the Buddha Um, and of course we have absolutely no idea about really what happened we have the ancient texts that tell us a, a, a particular story but there's different ways to interpret it um, usually it's interpreted with maximum reverence um, I'm going to provide a reading which has less reverence and which may or may not be more useful but uh, just to keep in mind that this is my own reading and I'm not necessarily saying that it's the truth actually the first time I gave these talks in Malaysia apparently they created a bit of a stir among the faithful and one of the meditators in the interviews was talking about this and she said but, but we know you don't really mean it <laughs> <laughs> well what a relief <laughs> anyway um, the Buddha attained awakening on the full moon of Vesaka which is roughly corresponds to May uh, this, of course, is the lunar calendar, so it doesn't quite fit the, our solar calendar. And his, the first teaching was delivered two months later on the full moon of Asalha in July. And this was a Dhammachaka Pavantana Sutta, turning the Dharma wheel, or more accurately, setting the Dharma wheel in motion, so beginning to turn the Dharma wheel, getting the Dharma wheel started and in that discourse he taught um, the middle way and the four truths and tonight we're going to have a look at the middle way in particular Um, so the Buddha uh, wakes up sitting under, under the tree and becomes the Buddha until then he was not the Buddha Buddha is a title, not a name. It means awakened. So someone who has woken up. Uh, His name that's given to us in the early teachings is Gotama. And Gotama was his family name. So in the the suttas, there's no mention of his first name. Um, Later tradition says it's Siddhartha. Siddhartha, one who has accomplished Atta, or Siddha, one who is successful... Uh, in his purpose, Atta. So one who has accomplished what he set out to accomplish. 
<coughs> now this may or may not have been his meaning, uh, his name. It, uh, maybe it was just given to him by the tradition as a way of a bit of historical boosting, but we'll take it as genuine, but we'll just call him Sid. This <laughs> is kind of more friendly. Um, but we'll, we, we won't meet Sid first, we'll start with him as the Buddha. He's 35 years old, he's just woken up. He's decided to teach, and there's a whole story there, but maybe we'll go into it later on. Um, actually, we should context we have to go into it now. Uh, when the Buddha woke up, he had no notion that he was going to become a great teacher. Uh, he just he had a problem, dukkha, and he wanted to solve it, and he did. And then uh, he was spent six weeks in under and around the Bodhi tree in um, what is now Bodhgaya, uh, enjoying the bliss of his awakening and basically probably just recovering. I mean, he must have had an enormous case of spiritual vertigo. You know, this blast of awakening and, you know, getting used to it must have been quite something. Um, he used to go, he had sitting periods that would last a week, just recovering, blissing out and kind of um, um, coming back to planet Earth, as it were. In the course of this period, the thought arose in his mind, maybe I should teach this. And this was quickly followed by another thought, which was, no. <laughs> because no one is going to understand this. There is no way I can ever communicate this. Now, fortunately for us, someone was eavesdropping. And this was Brahma Sahampati. He was a, 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 a was, and in, indeed, on good authority, still is, uh, a high a god up in one of the Brahma realms who actually was an old mate of Sid before he woke up. And this is um, a long, long time ago in during the teaching of a previous Buddha when he and Sid were both students. So Brahma Sahampati has been keeping an eye on Sid and he's been tracking this whole thing and he hears this thought. And of course he's horrified because, I mean, the whole plan is Buddha teaching. Buddhism. And suddenly it's all about to go belly up. So Sahampati heads down to earth, appears before the Buddha and pleads with him to change his mind. And the argument that he gives is he says, look um, there are just a few people who have a little dust. If you teach them, they will awaken. But if you don't, they will perish. So you've got to do it. So the Buddha says, Okay, I'll do it. I'll take it on. But you notice how at the very beginning, the way the project is defined, just a few people. There's clearly, the Buddha has no notion that he's going to create a world religion. That's not in his thinking. He, can, he might find a few people who might just possibly understand what just happened. So he at first thinks of his... Um, two previous meditation teachers. He had two meditation teachers when he was Sid, uh, still a Bodhisattva, but they had both died, one a week before, the one the night before, and because they, were, they had accomplished um, serenity to a very great extent, they were reborn in a very 
exalted and um, subtle heaven where they are today. And by the time their good car, their, the results of their good karma run out and they get rebuilt on earth, Buddhism will have been long since finished and they'll just have to wait for the next Buddha and start the whole thing all, all over again. Imagine how you would feel if you missed it by one night. <laughs> so how, how pissed off would you be? But that's karma. And the, the point of the story is, of course, that the, the, the opportunity to, to actually encounter the Dharma and benefit from it is extremely rare. So don't waste it. You don't know how long in one's wanderings in samsara one might go before one gets another, another opportunity. So they're off the list. And then the Buddha thinks of his five former companions. Now, we're going to look at them later on, but basically in his Dharma career, he had tried first um, meditation, getting developing very deep absorption states. Having decided that was a dead end, he then tried ascetic practices, which he did without a teacher, but he attracted five equally fanatical men who were also committed to the practice of asceticism, and they were very impressed by what he was doing, and they decided to hang around and wait until he got enlightened. But there was a bit of a kerfluffle, a bit of an argument, and the five companions headed off in one direction and Sid headed off in the other, and so they hadn't seen each other for some time. Um, and so the Buddha thinks of them, maybe they might possibly, conceivably, understand. So he uses his psychic powers and he discovers that they're staying at a place called Isipatana, north of Varanasi, or what is now or sometimes pronounced Varanasi. So he heads off. Um, now as he's going down the road, he meets someone called Upaka, who is an Ajivaka. The Ajivaka is an early ascetic order. Um, and Upaka is coming in one way, Buddha is going in another way, they meet. And Upaka is really impressed by this guy. Now the Buddha apparently was, by all reports, he was extremely good looking. Plus he is radiating the glow of his awakening. So Upaka was very impressed and he says, Friend, your faculties are clear, your complexion is pure and bright. Under whom have you gone out? Who is your teacher? Whose dharma do you follow? So Upaka clearly impressed. This guy has obviously realised something. So what? where does he belong? Where does he fit? Who's his teacher? What tradition does he belong to? Now here's the first opportunity that the Buddha has to actually teach dharma. He's spoken to people before now, but he has not spoken of his realization um, he's spoken more in terms of faith sadda, the, the heart connection uh, here's someone who might possibly get it and he actually wants the teaching so the Buddha decides to just give him the full blast and he bursts into spontaneous verse and of course the English translation is not verse but what to do the Buddha says I am the one who has overcome everything, who understands everything, unstained among all phenomena, abandoning everything, freed by the exhausting of craving, 
having understood directly by myself, to whom should I point? So remember the original question is, under whom have you renounced the world? Who is your teacher? For me there is no teacher, and one like me is unknown. In the world, with all its devas, there is no one equal to me. I am the worthy one of the world. I am the supreme teacher alone. I am Samma Sambuddha. I am cooled, extinguished. To set turning the wheel of Dharma, I am going to the city of Kasi. In a world gone blind, I go to beat the drum of the deathless. So that's what he says. And clearly this is not a man with any sense of lack of self-worth. <laughs> it's a complete complete confidence and just, as I said, full blast. This is a what's called in the tradition a declaration of truth. It's just, okay, he wants to know, I'll hammer him with what's actually going on. Um, Upakar points out that this is a claim to enlightenment. And the Buddha says, mm, that's correct. I think you understand what's going on. And um, Upakar shakes his head and says, Hupayapavusso, um, which could be roughly translated in contemporary English as, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and he leaves. Um, it's more like, yeah, friend, maybe. Yeah, possibly. Well, so you say. That's nice. I hope you enjoy it. Bye. And he continues on his journey, completely unimpressed. Totally not impressed. So, as he leaves, uh, perhaps the Buddha was thinking to himself, well, that went well. <laughs> Not. <laughs> so, and, it's, and it brings out the problem that he's got. The reason why he didn't want to teach in the first place is because it's impossible to communicate this. How is he going to do it? He's, when he's marching off down the road, he has no idea how he's going to do it. It's, it's not that he's got a plan. All he's got is uh, possible contenders, possible students. He tries out Upika because he thinks, okay, this, this guy is interested. And he says basically the first thing that comes to his mind, and it's a complete shamozzle. So all he knows is that that's not going to work. So at least he's eliminated one wrong, wrong track. Um, and off he goes, and he must be wondering, so how am I going to do this? How, how many false, how false starts can I go through before I realise I was right the first time? and it can't be taught anyway he, he continues his journey he arrives at Isipatana and the five companions don't want to listen um, they see him coming and they kind of nudge each other and, and say there's Sid bastard uh, and they say just ignore him <laughs> you know, he, he'll go away but he's coming straight for them and the thing is he's radiating this awakening and they just cannot despite themselves they cannot ignore it so they kind of grumpily you know, stand aside and they prepare a seat which probably just means a cloth thrown on the ground ok you can sit down so they're sitting down and they're 
there's this uneasy silence because they're wondering what the hell is he doing here and um, he um, explains that what he's doing here is that he's enlightened he says I'm the Buddha I did it you know you were hanging around waiting for me to do it well I've I've done it and they are even less impressed than Upaka and they just completely dismiss the, the whole thing that we're not interested you know, basically go away and so he tells them again look I've done it it's, I, I'm, I'm awakened and I can teach you and they just not interested go away now this is getting on dangerous territory because remember we talked about the significance of the number three if you ask a question three times it's like it means you're serious so the person's got to respond but equally if you're offering a teaching and it's refused three times that means it's serious the teaching is rejected go away now he's come all this way because he thinks okay these five have the potential to awaken and they will not listen to him they've already knocked him back twice he's got one more shot just to get them to listen there's no guarantee that they're going to accept what he says but even to get them to listen one more shot so everything is hanging by a thread finally he says to them have you ever known me to speak like this before have I ever claimed any enlightenment whatsoever before? And this gets them looking at each other and thinking, and they remember, they realise, well, in fact, he never has. They were very impressed by him back in the day, and they thought, oh, maybe he's enlightened, but he quickly hit that idea on the head. And they wanted to be his students, but he, he hit that on the head too. I'm not enlightened, I'm not a teacher. I'm just here doing my ascetic practices. Please don't take up that bit of nails. It's mine. Um, get out of my way. And they said, well, can we at least hang around? We'll do our own practices and you know, in your vicinity. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, okay, you can do that. So he's never made any claim like, like this before. And he's reminding them, have I ever done this before? And they say, well, no, you never have. And he says, well, I'm making it now. And this stops them. They, and they look at each other and they decide, well, you know, we've known Sid for a while. We don't like him, which is why we left. But we know that he's not a liar. If he says something is so, then he believes that it is so. If he says that he's enlightened, then he certainly believes that he's enlightened. Something must have happened. So they say, okay, we'll listen to you. So the, the stage is set, the Buddha can start teaching. Um, it's interesting that, again, there's this... The Buddha begins with a declaration of truth. I've done it, I'm, I'm awakened. The first time, it didn't work. The second time it almost didn't work, but finally it does work. And, and if we ask what's the difference between the two occasions, the difference is the social context. On the second occasion, he was talking to people who knew him. Um, Upika didn't know him, 
he could have been, you know, looking like he's enlightened, but actually a refugee from the, the loony bin, bin down the road. Or, I mean, they probably didn't have loony bins, but this was the Gaia area. And Gaia at the time, and today, is, was notorious for being a highly charged, um, psychically highly charged area full of ghosts and spirits. And so he may well have been possessed. It's quite possible. But the five companions, they know him. And so the declaration of truth, truth has more power uh, depending on the social context. When, when, when people know you and trust you, then what you, they're prepared to, to take what you say to be true. So the first discourse begins, and the version which is handed down, now again, these, the suttas are kind of executive summaries. They're designed to be put into the memory banks and chanted. So they're not actually word for word what was said. They're a kind of summary of the key points. And this is how the discourse begins. This is how I heard it. Once the Blessed One was living at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. There he addressed the group of five bhikkhus. Now you can see that this is kind of artificially forced into a template from the very beginning because in fact there were no bhikkhus at this time. These were ascetics. They hadn't ordained. They were not bhikkhus. But they're called bhikkhus. Bhikkhu here is bhikkhu in the sense of committed practitioner. But this is before the Sangha. The Buddha says, uh, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone out into homelessness. What to? The pursuit of sensual happiness among sensual pleasures, which is inferior normal, the way of ordinary people, lacking in refinement and useless, and the practice of self-exhaustion, which is painful, lacking in refinement and useless. Avoiding both these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way that gives rise to seeing and understanding and leads to calming, direct knowledge, full awakening, Nibbana. And what is the middle way that gives rise to seeing and understanding and leads to calming, direct knowledge, full awakening, Nibbāna. This eightfold path of the noble ones, of the cultivated ones, right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right energy, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So this is the, the middle way. Uh, and, and you notice that what, what it is, is a strategy. Um, how is the Buddha going to present his awakening? He tried the kind of the full blast and that didn't work. So now he's coming at it indirectly and he begins by introducing this notion of the middle way. And in the discourses there are different presentations of the middle way. And the most common are the middle way between existence and non-existence, between apti and napti and between eternalism and annihilationism, sasata and ucceda. Um, here, it's, it's taught as the middle way between the extremes of sensual happiness and the practice of self-exhaustion. And this, is, this presentation of the middle way is actually, as far as I know, unique to this particular discourse. In every other discourse, it's presented differently. You know, basically between existence, non-existence, eternalism, annihilationism. This presentation of the middle way is unique. 
in other words, the middle way is a general principle and it can be applied to, in different, to different circumstances where it has a kind of different appearance. Um, and context is everything. The Buddha needs to get through to this particular group of people. It's no good giving them some general universally true principle if it just goes right over their heads. He's got to figure out a way to get through their defences to get them to really open up to what he wants to tell them. Um, because there are defences against hearing the Dharma. We all have layers of armour to prevent us from actually hearing the Dharma. Um, the Buddha may have reflected on the difficulty of communicating Dharma from his experience when he was a young man um, still at home and he had his first realisation of uh, it's been summarised as he suddenly saw immediately and directly ageing sickness and death and the universality of them plus in the stories he also saw a samana, as someone who was practicing to overcome this pain. Now, at this time, Sid was a young man living a privileged life as a upper-class lad in the Shaki Republic, and we don't know how old he was. Um, if the tradition is correct, he, he would have been probably mid twenties, but I think this is more like something which would have happened to a teenager, mm. personally. Um, but basically, he suddenly realised that he's going to get old, get sick and die. And it's not just him, it's everyone. And it just, for some reason or other, one day he was open, he was vulnerable, bang, it hits him. And he is profoundly shocked. All his normal layers of defences against understanding this, for some mysterious reason, dropped away and he just got hit with it. Um, now all of us um, have layers of defences against this understanding because that's what enables us to live normally within the world otherwise we'd go crazy to drop our armour could expose us to something a reality that could send us mad um, and it could have sent Sid mad um, instead it sent him catapulted out of home off onto the, the quest for enlightenment and not only is this realisation profound and moving, which of course the companions know, his audience knows this but what characterises this is a complete inability to actually communicate it to anybody else so he comes, comes back home sweating, shaking, in a state of shock. And his parents say, what happened? What's the matter? And he says, we're all going to die. And at first his father is worried. His father is president for life of the Shaki Republic. He's, reaching, he's already reaching for his sword and he says, which way did you see the army coming? <laughs> and Sid says, no, 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 there's no invasion. I'm just saying, we're all going to die. And his father is looking at him kind of Oddly, 
and his attitude is and like duh and Sid says no you don't understand we're all going to get old and we're all going to get sick and then we're all going to die and his parents are looking at each other and saying yeah um, maybe you should wash up before dinner no you don't understand <laughs> so he Sid's seen something that in a sense everybody knows and everybody has come to terms with it in their own way but his understanding of it is so deep and so fresh he can't come to terms with it so from his parents point of view basically the kids have gone crazy you know calm down you know <laughs> cool it you'll, you'll recover you know okay take a holiday for a while the life isn't so bad you know <laughs> uh, but of course he's, he can't hear many of this but they can't hear what he's saying. To have some kind of penetrating understanding is to put you in a, a very isolated position. Where can you go to for anybody to actually get what you're talking about? He had to leave home. There was no one who could understand. So he knows from his own experience when he's faced with these five companions how deep the, the layers of defences go. So he's got to find a way, first of all, to open up those defense defenses expose the problem and show the way out uh, and that's that's his his challenge so to come back to his audience these are practitioners of the path of severe asceticism uh, what they were doing is very close to uh, following Jain principles and again this was this tradition was quite strong in the Gaia area. When when Sid left home, he was up in um, N- Nepal, and he would have got onto the main highway heading southeast. So he would have crossed into what is now northern Bihar, and that's where he practiced meditation. This is apparently an area which is very strong in yoga practice. Was um, dissatisfied with the results of the meditation practices kept travelling he went south of the Ganga and headed up, ended up in the Gaia area which again very powerful shamanic powers very common in that area hauntings spirits very dangerous area and this is where the most fanatical ascetics used, would, would, would come and that's where he started up this practice and this is where he meets these other ascetics now, what everybody wants is sukkha, pleasure, happiness, bliss, peace, etc. This is what all the practitioners are, are heading for. Um, but how to get it? The ascetics believe that the way to sukkha is through dukkha. You, you just face your pain directly and go straight through it to the other side. When you get there, bang. Sukkha, uh, awakening, enlightenment, um, and this, of course, is a. If you if you've trained in classical Mahasi, this is a tradition which you're all very familiar with. If you say my body hurts intensely when I sit, you'd be told just note it until it goes away. Endure, endurance, sit through pain. You get the same flavors of practice. Uh, it's not just the 
specific ascetic tradition, this kind of attitude can permeate many different traditions. So the Buddha understands these five companions because he shared the same beliefs, practices, attitudes. Um, he, Siddhartha believed that what's, what holds us back from awakening is our attachment to pleasure. So we're so attached to pleasure, to having a good time, that we can't unstick ourselves in order to proceed to awakening. So pleasure was the enemy. What changed for him, and now we're backtracking to when he was an ascetic, um, he practiced this way of asceticism, and being completely fanatical, macho young man, he practiced it to, close to the point of dying. One of the, one of the practices he specialised in was self-starvation and he told his, many years later he was explaining to, to his students that he was so skinny that he could poke his finger into his belly and feel his backbone. Um, so this, this Sid was just totally macho, fanatical, bulldozer kind of fellow. Um, and he, what he was bulldozing through was his attachment to pleasure. But he came to realise that this wasn't working. The, the way of asceticism. He was close to death and still no closer to awakening. Um, and so he came to a crisis. Um, now, later on, he describes his practice. The, medita the kind of meditation practice he did at this point He's explaining years later to his students um, what he was doing as an, as an ascetic. I thought, suppose, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain and crush mind with mind. So, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained and crushed mind with mind. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits. Pretty impressive. <laughs> now, think about it. If you're sitting there and sweat is not running from, from your armpits, are you really making enough effort? <laughs> <laughs> and is there a tightness in your jaw? Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain and crush him, so too with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained and crushed mind with mind and sweat ran from my armpits. But, although tireless energy was aroused in me and unforgotten mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and agitated because I was exhausted by the painful striving. So that's the practice that he tried that did not work. He had tireless energy and unforgotten mindfulness. Sounds pretty good to me. But there was an immense strain in all of this. My body was overwrought and agitated because I was exhausted by the painful striving. You notice the role of the body in all of this. Um, so then he, he reflects, whatever painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion samanas or brahmanas have experienced in the past this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. And whatever painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion 
samanas or brahmanas will experience in the future this is the utmost there is none beyond this and whatever painful racking piercing feelings due to exertion samanas or brahmanas experience in the present this is the utmost there is none beyond this so whatever is humanly possible to do in the terms of making heroic effort and just driving yourself bulldozing your way to enlightenment whatever anybody could have done in the past whatever anybody could do in the future whatever, what anybody is doing in the present I've done it it's like he's won the race but no one's applauding because it's completely useless it's not working all it's doing is killing you so um, and he concludes but I have not attained any states surpassing the human by this racking practice of austerities any distinction in understanding and seeing worthy of cultivated ones it's been a complete failure now this is, this is a, a man who walked out of a marriage walked out from his family including his newborn son walked out from his career as a leader of his people um, as I said he had two teachers that we know about uh, meditation teachers Alawa Kamala Udaka um, Ramaputta with both teachers he was a naturally gifted meditator he mastered their meditation system he's very bright he learned the theoretical dharma that they taught in both cases he graduated his first teacher says you've done it whatever I know you know the dharma needs teachers there are people in this assembly we can use your help could you teach and Sid looks at him with a glance of withering contempt and says and this is all there is to it now I'm out of here and he walks off so he hasn't just abandoned his family he's abandoned his dharma community he goes to another teacher the same thing walks out on them this is a serial walker out of gets to the point where he's doing the austerities and he's completely alone I mean he's alienated everybody by this point um, just this fanatic determination not to compromise um, until, he, until he's satisfied regardless of the cost anybody else is paying for his lifestyle um, and at the end it doesn't work because basically he's wasted his life and it looks like he's going to die soon and so the thought arises could there be another way to awakening he's desperately trying to think of something and suddenly up pops a spontaneous memory from his childhood I remember that when my father the Shakyan was occupied while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree withdrawn from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states I attained and lived in the first absorption which is accompanied by applied and sustained application with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion could this be the way to awakening then following on that memory came the awareness this is the way to awakening so he has a spontaneous memory of an equally spontaneous experience that happened in childhood this story gets increasingly elaborated over the centuries but this is the earliest version it's very simple mm -hmm. he's um, young 
we don't know how old he's, it's hot he's sitting under the cool shade of a rose apple tree watching his father work in the hot sun now I don't know about you but sitting in the cool shade preferably with a nice drink watching other people work in the hot sun this, this sort of thing gives me great pleasure and makes me feel particularly relaxed so there he is sitting relaxed not a care in the world and he just slides into this spontaneous concentration state which is characterised by pleasure Um, and so he asks himself the thought why am I afraid of pleasure and I find this question fascinating uh, he's at a complete dead end. He's, he's desperate to find out what have I done wrong and what he zero, zeroes in on is the question, why am I afraid of pleasure? Um, and the, the full statement is, why am I afraid of pleasure that is unconnected to sensual stimulation and unwholesome states? Um, now, what he's talking about is non-addictive pleasure. Well, let's see what he's talking about. And he resolved that I'm not a- afraid of such pleasure. Um, now, the, the basic principle that he's following at this point is people are, we're all stuck on pleasure. So we've got to get away from this. What he recognises here is that there's different kinds of pleasure. There's what in the suttas is called sensual pleasure, and this is essentially um, pleasure that that comes from and is dependent upon a sense stimulus. I get a certain stimulus, ooh, that feels good. And that pleasure is temporary, it arises only with, because of the stimulus. When the stimulus fades, the pleasure fades, and if I want more, I've got to renew the stimulus. <coughs> so, the, in other words, it's what we would call addictive pleasure. Pleasure which is, is based on a relationship of uh, addictive return to the source of the pleasure. In a broader sense, it's the pleasure of consumerism, what we're familiar with in, as consumerism. Um, I shouldn't tell you this because this would disturb your meditations, but while you've been cloistered here, there's been some very significant news global on a global scale. Apple have released a new iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got really interesting little gadgety things that the old iPhones don't have anymore. <gasps> All over the planet, people are lining up, desperate, camping. camping. <laughs> They've got to get these new iPhones. I mean, how can you live without another iPhone, with a new one? And it's just, this is, I mean, the old iPhone, I mean, ugh. how could I have thought that this is great? It's terrible. I've got to get another one. This is the kind of the pleasure that um, is, is what is un, in the code in the suttas is sensual pleasure Um, now that kind of pleasure the pleasure often that's called the pleasure of the household life um, is it's sticky Um, and at this point Siddhartha realises okay 
That's right. But what I need is pleasure, but I need a different kind of pleasure, a pleasure which is not sticky, which is not addictive. Um, and remember how he came across this. There was a memory from childhood. In other words, a pleasure that has a childlike quality of spontaneity to it. Uh, a pleasure that comes from a time when we are willing to accept whatever the world offers before disillusionment. So, a pleasure in which um, there's not that grasping, addictive grasping, is not only unnecessary, but it's not even yet conceived of. Um, so this is he discovers who, uh, the spontaneous pleasure that characterises childhood when it's a happy childhood presumably um, and his project becomes how can I return to this pleasure today as an adult I already had it when I was a child but somewhere I lost it and I didn't even notice that I lost it now I realise I've got to find it because this is the way I can unstick myself. This is the way to awaken it. And so this is hence the displeasure of the companions because the companions are you know, having going some normal day at the office, flogging themselves, starving themselves, <laughs> beating themselves up. And they notice that Sid has disappeared. He's not in his usual part of the forest. And then they see him walking um, towards them there's a little smile on his face they haven't seen that before and he's also rubbing his stomach in a very contented way and they say What's, what happened what changed and he says that was, I just had this fantastic lunch <laughs> that was really good and I think I'll have a nap now <laughs> and they're just horrified <laughs> who does this guy think he is a complete backslider total betrayer, backstabber and so they're just so disgusted with him that they march off or alternatively maybe he marched off from them what a bunch of killjoys why should I waste my time with them so in any event that's when they split uh, and Siddhartha goes off to generate pleasure the principle that he discovers is that the path itself must be pleasurable the path to sukkha has to be sukkha um, and pleasure in the sense that what we might call contentment um, when we're contented we don't have hmm? You get training and absorption from one of those teachers, you know? Yeah. So what's, what's the difference? Yeah. Um, we don't know. This is the problem. Uh, we don't know whether it was a different way of developing absorption uh, and that he cultivated another way later or whether he, it was just kind of compartmentalised off into a different... Um, just part of it, part of life, and that it wasn't um, didn't spread over to ordinary everyday life. We don't really know. 
we've just got this little, little bit of data from which we're weaving this bedtime story. So that's one of the mysteries. Uh, definitely he attained very subtle states of concentration and they would have been blissful. Sweating armpits? Sweating armpits came later. We don't know whether with his first two teachers he had sweating armpits. That was when he was doing, when he was crushing mind with mind. Uh, so we, we don't know what he was doing. Um, we just know that he was dissatisfied with it. <clears throat> that it didn't seem to, it seemed to be a dead end. And maybe it was very pleasurable, but maybe it was a, a relationship to pleasure which he found to be a dead end. So now, so then he pursues pain, so now he's looking for a relationship to pleasure which is not a dead end. It's a whole new <coughs> way of approaching it. But we don't know that. There are many mysteries. Um, but when we're contented, uh, we don't have any sense, we don't have any felt need to look further than what is happening now. So we're not anxiously thinking about the future. Um, we're no longer concerned with any result that may arise in the future. So you might have had a, a sitting in which it's going quite well, but underlying it is this sort of kind of sense of anxiety and agitation that, oh, this is going well, so that then I can get what I want. And, and I hope this keeps going for the rest of the retreat. So this mind state is this coming from a sense of anxiety and insecurity. I want something in the future. And this pleasure now is useful to me insofar as it will get something for me in the future. That's not contentment. In a state of contentment, I'm not even thinking of the result. It doesn't occur to me to think of a future result. What I've got is fine. Thank you very much. When Siddhartha was practicing asceticism, he was crushing mind with mind. With that kind of practice, he must have been looking for a result. He must have been looking for what would happen next, which would justify this effort that he's making now. Um, but he begin, here he begins looking for a relationship to the practice in which nothing more needs to be grasped, in which the attention is so completely absorbed in what's happening in the present that any sense of a future result can be completely forgotten. Um, a quality of absorption where there's no need to look to an imagined future for, to get something that's missing now. Um, And this is where he's coming from when he teaches the middle way. Is it possible that his um, sojourn with the two teachers of absorption could have been after his ascetic period? Not, not according to the tradition. No, no. Just a curiosity. No. There's, I, don't know, I don't know where it... I've always read that he left home at the age of 29 and was awakened at 35. Mm. But I haven't seen that in the suttas. Mm. I can't recall a sutta where it actually gives his age. The problem that we got is there's kind of the legend is layers and we get the completed legend and it's hard to sort out the earliest. And in the suttas it only talks about you know, the ascetic period and the period with the teachers. It actually doesn't give any order to them. In... 
I think, well, it's the order in which they're, they're spoken of. But I have to check that. Mm. It'd be interesting to, to see. I know the tradition puts them... Yeah, the tradition puts them that way. But if you, you know, considering Hugh's um, question, you know, he, he comes out of the ascetic period thinking, well, maybe maybe that pleasure of absorption is a useful path to follow. Mm. It would follow that he would then go and train in that. Yeah, could be. Have to Just have as a, yeah, have you know, no, no evidence. <laughs> I have to look it up. It's an interesting point. Um, now, so this is where he, how his practice turned around, mm. and then it ended up with awakening. Now he's talking to the ascetics, and he knows exactly where they're coming from because he was there. There's a sense in which he knows how tough his first audience is because in a sense he's talking to his pre-enlightened self I was exactly like that and he knows he can remember what a tough nut he was to crack how he wouldn't listen to anyone so how is how can he get through to them and where he where he, where he goes is this whole business about the relationship to pleasure and pain um, most people think the way to happiness is through what we call consumerism vast majority of people believe that firmly the ascetics belong to a tiny little minority who have seen who have decided that is a complete crock that is complete rubbish um, it doesn't work it's never going to work we have to do something different now, and so they, they practice asceticism. Now, to do that, you have to be particularly stubborn and, and fanatical, just even to begin to do this, much less to stick with it. So this is a hard audience to, to crack. And the logic of the ascetics is, um, I pursue this path heading in this direction, which is the path of grabbing pleasure. It doesn't work. So the path this way is the wrong path in the wrong direction. What would be the path in the right direction? Where should I go? Thinks, ah, got it, that way. The opposite way. If the, this way is the wrong way, then the opposite way must be the right way. And that's the, the essential logic behind it. Um, what the practitioners miss, what the Buddha has realised, is that the opposite way is also the wrong way, precisely because it's the opposite. That is what makes it the wrong way. And he expresses this in terms of the anta, the extremes. An anta is a point beyond which you cannot go further. So the, amount, the, the top of a, a peak of a mountain is an anta. You can go that far, you can't go any further. So you can push in one direction, go as far as you can in the pursuit of pleasure, doesn't work. But if you then head with the same determination in the opposite direction, you just hit another anta, it doesn't work. What characterises the pursuit of pleasure in the ordinary consumerist addictive sense is obsession, drivenness, or what the Buddha came to call tanha, literally thirst. The ascetics can see that and they've renounced it. 
what they haven't noticed is that what drives their practice is obsession, drivenness, tanha. They think they're not in the same boat as all these tacky lay people. They're in exactly the same boat. They're just heading in the opposite direction. But they are equally as driven as the lay people. The lay people are stuck on pleasure, but they are stuck on pain. The point is not the pleasure or the pain. The point is the stuckness. That's what causes the problem. Uh, and so uh, uh, the pleasure that the Buddha is talking about, real pleasure, the pleasure that he stumbled into under the, tr- the rose apple tree, is the pleasure that comes from the absence of drivenness. It's when drivenness, obsession, drops away that real pleasure emerges. So the Buddha is pointing out to them, you think you're heading in the right direction because it's the opposite way of the wrong direction, but you're wrong because it's the opposite. And it is equally driven. It's the drivenness which is the problem. And this is the middle way. So um, the middle way cannot be defined as the opposite of another way. Because that would just be another extreme. Sometimes you see the middle way, often you see the middle way, presented as the, the middle way of moderation. So don't be extreme. Try the middle way. But if you think about that, what is it really saying? It's saying, okay, here... Here is one extreme. Here's another extreme. Get out a ruler, measure it precisely, dead in the middle, there's the middle way. But what's that? That's the opposite of the two ends. It's just another under. It's just another extreme. Um, the middle way... Um, can only be found where there are no extremes in other words where we are not stuck on anything at all so the middle way is a dynamic balance between opposites Um, it's characterised by no fixed position as soon as we land somewhere and say this is it this is it then that, its opposite, is not it, and we're in the extremes. As soon as we land anywhere and hold on, we're caught up in extremes. So the middle way is can only be found where there is no fixed position, and this dynamic balance can only be found in the present. Because any notion of past and future involves grasping and it involves opposite extremes. I'm doing this for that. I'm caught up in the extremes again. And the the Buddha then gives the example of the middle way as the Eightfold Path. And you notice that this illustrates this basic principle. So you have the Eightfold Path. It's, It's one thing. Except it's not a thing, it's a complex system made up of eight parts. Right view, right aspiration, right action, 
right speech, right livelihood, right energy, right mindfulness and right concentration. So you have eight factors, each of which has to be balanced with the other. But to make it more complicated, it's divided into three subsystems. Um, the, um, the wisdom group, the ethics group, <coughs> and the meditation group. So the wisdom group consists of right view, right aspiration. Both of these have to balance each other. Then you get the ethics group, right action, speech and livelihood. Each one of these has to balance each other. Then you get the meditation group, right effort, or energy, mindfulness, concentration, these have to balance each other. Each one of these in each group has to balance each other so that this particular group is balanced. Each one of the groups has to balance with each other and every one of the eight factors has to be balanced with every other of the factors. If I was mathematically inclined, I could work out how many possible relationships that would add up to. I've never attempted it because my mathematics is pathetic, but I'm pretty sure it would be a large number. Um, so this, this enormously complex network of relationships, all of which are dynamic, because every aspect is influenced by the state of every other aspect, which is true of all of them, and they're all moving. So there is no place to stand still. There is no ground upon which to fix a position. And this is the middle way. And you would, you've noticed it in your own practice. Have you ever had the thought, after much struggle, ah, I've figured it out. This is it. This is what I do. It works perfectly. Have you ever come to that position where you've thought, okay, that's it. True. Been a, it's been a while, but now I've got it down. All I've got to do is just do this. If you've had that experience, you know how disappointed you are the next time <laughs> you apply this principle because it doesn't work, because the whole thing has already changed. In other words, you've landed smack in the middle of an anta, of an extreme. And the first thing we have to do is de-stick ourselves from that and re-enter the middle way, which is just dancing all the time. And there's nowhere that we can pin it down. And this is why, after 40 years of meditation, you think to yourself, I think I'm beginning to get the hang of it. <laughs> Actually, I was talking recently to an old mate of mine, long-time meditator, and he says, look, with meditation practice, you practice hard for 25 years, and then you begin to understand what you're doing. But you only begin to understand. <laughs> it's... It's an inherently dynamic and complex process. And this is what the Buddha was trying to communicate to the five ascetics. Basically, he's trying to unstick them from their fixed views about what was right and what was wrong, and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. First, you have to open them up to recognise that they've been the bad news on the wrong path all this time. The good news, they can do something about it. And they can do something about it now. Because the only time that we can do something about it is now. And so the five companions get it and suddenly oof, they're open and the Buddha can begin to convey what he's talking about.
But we'll do that tomorrow night. Because I think we've gone for a long time already. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.